Welcome to the RYR Endurance Team Podcast. We are grateful that you've chosen to tune in and listen. If you are a runner, aspiring runner, triathlete, or aspiring triathlete, you are in the right place. We love sharing what we know about these sports. If you like what you hear, you can always learn more by contacting us at ryrcoach at gmail.com or by visiting our website, ryrenduranceteam.com. Hey, if you enjoy our podcast, please do us a favor. Give us a five-star review and subscribe. This helps others find us. Thanks for listening. Hello, Coach Paula. What's up, Mr. Roberts? Not much. We had an interesting Monday, didn't we? We had an exciting Monday. We had the privilege of taking our granddaughter, Eliane, to Holiday World. Yes, Eliane is just 18 months at the release of this podcast, and she loves the Holiday World. Her first trip. She did great. She did. And when our kids were little, they rode the fish ride. So it's eight little fish that go around and around in a circle that goes up and down a little bit. And the fish are small, so adults cannot ride with the child. One child per fish. So I honestly thought she would not get in a fish and ride it. But it's the first ride she noticed when we went into the little kitty land. They moved that ride. It used to be not in the kitty land. It used to be across from the canoes, but now it's in the little up front kitty section. At Holiday World. And fish is one of the few words she says that we can understand. As soon as she saw it, she pointed and said, Eesh! Mm-hmm. And there were only about eight or nine kids in line. So we went ahead and got in line, and we watched it fill up once. And so she was able to watch it work its magic twice. So she, I guess she kind of knew what the ride was. I assumed when I carried her over to the fish and set her in the fish and of course you know what color I picked. I don't remember what color you picked. What color would I pick? Red. Yeah so she was in a red fish and I assumed when I went to place her in the fish she would draw her knees up to her chest like she did when we tried to stand her up in the sand you know that don't mm-hmm. put me down draw the legs up. Yeah. She did not. She sat right down in that fish and then she let me walk away and get outside the fence she just sat there and fidgeted with all the little things inside the fish. And then the ride started. And her face got a little surprised look on it. But she did great. She did great. She made it through the whole ride. Toward the end, she was getting a little unhappy. So I rushed in there and picked her up out of the fish. And then she started whimpering a little bit. So I don't know if she was whimpering at what she had just experienced or she was whimpering because I took her out of the fish. But I think she was happy to be back in my arms. Yeah, yeah. I had some good snuggle time with her on that day, too. She was fun. So I don't know if we talked about this on a podcast before, but Eliane's dad, our son Jacob, he did a Tough Mudder. He did the Tough Mudder in Columbus, Indiana a few weeks ago now, and he had a blast. Is that something you'd like to do someday? No, thank you. Yeah. Mm. I'm not sure I would either. I don't mind getting dirty. I don't know that I would go looking for mud to jump in it. And I'm not really excited about electricity either. Shocking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but he and his guy friends had a good time. And it wouldn't surprise me if he didn't do another one at some point. I volunteered to go and chaperone or at least cheer him on. He did not want his mom on a guy trip. I just don't get it. <laughs> I don't understand. I mean, 
They didn't get any pictures at all. I know. Had I been there, it would have been fully documented. Yeah. Oh, well. Yeah. Did you have anything else to say about the Tough Mudder? Because there's something I want to talk about. I have nothing else to say <laughs> on that. Except congratulations, Jacob, on your first Tough Mudder. That's right. Even if Mom didn't get to go cheer. Can you stand another conversation about the Olympics? The Olympics were great. Sure. Let's keep the Olympics going. Yeah. So... The Olympics have been over for about a week now, but I'm just still so impressed with Sydney McLaughlin. She, well, I guess what I'm going to refer to mostly is her gold medal in the 400 meter hurdles. So I know I've mentioned to you before, but I think not on the podcast, that her coach actually had her do a bunch of races doing the 100 meter hurdles using the lead leg that's not her comfortable lead leg. So in hurdles, your lead leg is the leg you lift as you're sprinting. It's in front as you hurdle. So for example, if I hurdle, I'm going to be my natural lead leg is going to be my right leg. So I'd probably hurt myself if I tried to hurdle with my left leg as the lead leg. So let me take a tangent here. So I golf right-handed, and my dad is right-handed, but he golfs left-handed. I don't know how that happened. But I can't imagine trying to golf with his left-handed clubs. It would be worse than normal, and I'd probably throw my back out. I can imagine it would be really difficult hurdling with your opposite leg. Yeah, and on that same note, even though I'm right-handed, when I do a cartwheel, I do it as a left-handed person would do it. So if I try to do it as a right-handed person would do it, it does not go well. I ski on one ski as a left-handed person would do. Let me ask you a question. Before you do. Okay. My brother calls that being funny-footed. So. (laughs) Yeah. So. I think I've heard that term in relation to wakeboarding before. If you're right-handed, but you kick the ball with your left foot, is that funny? It's unusual. But anyway. Oh, back to your story. (laughs) We're talking about the Olympics here, Mr. Tangent. I'm usually Miss Tangent, though, so I can't really complain. Sydney McLaughlin did all these races in which she didn't win because she was doing the 100-meter hurdles with whichever foot was not her dominant lead leg foot. But as she did this over and over and over again, it became equally, I I don't know if it feels the same to or not, but she was able to hurdle equally with both legs ambidextrous yes so as she was doing the 400 meter hurdles and you could if you were paying attention you would notice this and i used to coach hurdles so it's always interesting to me to count patterns and steps between hurdles but in her case in the 400 meter hurdle she didn't have to worry about it she just sprinted and then if the left leg was the natural leg as she ran she lifted it if the right leg was she lifted that. So in her race where she won the gold medal, she was sometimes leading with the right leg and sometimes leading with the left leg. So that was pretty impressive and it won her gold, but I was already impressed with her. And I believe she attended the University of Kentucky. You might have to fact check me on that. But here's what caught my attention was what she said after that gold medal. Would you like to hear it? I would. It says... Let me start off by saying what an honor it is to be able to represent not only my country, but also the kingdom of God. What I have in Christ is far greater 
than what I have or don't have in life. I pray my journey may be a clear depiction of submission and obedience to God. Even when it doesn't make sense, even when it doesn't seem possible, He will make a way out of no way, not for my own gratification, but for His glory. I have never seen God fail in my life, in anyone's life for that matter. Just because I may not win every race or receive every one of my heart's desires does not mean God has failed. His will is perfect, and He has prepared me for a moment such as this, that I may use the gifts He has given me to point all the attention back to Him. Well, that's really good. So if you didn't love her before, I mean, you have to love her now. Yeah, and that's part of our vision for our coaching is we want to help people reach their big goals, but we want to also share Christ with them. So getting back to the hurdles, I'm guessing that her success with this strategy is going to revolutionize hurdles for everyone going forward. Just like in 1968 when Dick Bosbury decided to do the high jump differently and was successful. Now everybody does the Bosbury flop. Yeah, he definitely revolutionized what high jumping looks like and the heights that people can clear. I wonder how he came up with that idea. That's a tangent. So we've mentioned before on this podcast that we have a friend who's doing the Moab 240. 240 miles to be exact. I'm feeling for you, Lee, already. And then our son did the Tough Mudder. That's not really an ultra marathon. But <laughs> it's not at all an ultra marathon. <laughs> but it has some unusual challenges. It's on grass. And I wanted to talk today about ultra running. Okay. Before we get started, I have yet to do an ultra marathon. Ditto. But I'm thinking about it. So I've been doing some research and I recently read Hal Kerner's book called Field Guide to Ultra Running. It's a good book. I really enjoyed it. He had some really good stories about his experiences and, and what he learned throughout his training and racing that he's passing on to others. And he was very successful, has been very successful, but I just thought I'd walk through some of the material and share that with our listeners. And I would encourage you to find his book and buy a copy of it. It was really good. Yeah, we can put a link to it in the show notes. Yeah, somebody wants to purchase it. Yeah. All right, so let's get started. So an ultra is anything, any running event beyond a marathon. And the typical distances are a 50K, a 50 mile, a 100K, or a 100 mile, but it could be anything. And so a 50K is approximately 31 miles, and then 100K is about 62 miles for those that don't do metric. But one part of ultra running is a race, and one part is survival. You've got to deal with the weather. You may encounter animals. Trails could be really technical. You're going to be exercising for a very long time, and you could have extreme exhaustion, and you may have mountains to go up or mountains to go down. But before we actually jump into Hal's tips, I want to start a little story that our son Jacob pointed me to online about an ultra runner. So this story is about Mauro Prosperi. And if you couldn't tell by my accent, he's Italian. <laughs> it's a me, a Mario. And he, is he, Mario Italian? He is Italian. Oh, and Luigi good. too. That's good. 
Motto, he was a professional pentathlete and a police officer. After he retired from being a professional athlete, he got the idea to do the Marathon des Sables in Morocco in 1994. And this was a 155-mile race across the Sahara Desert. And they call it a marathon? In whatever language. I'm guessing this is... I don't know what language do they speak in Morocco. Moroccan? (laughs) I don't know what it is. But that's what it was called. So Morrow wrote this article for the BBC that, that I gathered this information from. And he said, as part of the registration for the race... You had to declare who to send your remains to if you did not survive. Do you think this race was treacherous? Likely, yes. Yeah. One part race, one part survival. So to to prepare for this race, Morrow was fit. I mean, he was a professional athlete. He knew how to train. He knew how to take care of himself. He was running 25 miles a day, just about every day. And he even tried to acclimate to being without water. So I, I don't know that it's a good idea to try to learn dehydration. But he took he was taking it seriously. He wanted to complete it and he wanted to do well. So as the race was proceeding on the fourth day, he was in fourth place overall. So he was doing good out of about 80 people. So it's a very small race because who would want to do this? But on the fourth day, a sandstorm blew up in the desert. And so he hunkered down to uh, protect himself from the sand. And he commented that it was painful, the sand blowing really hard. So at this point, he wasn't worried about where he was in the race. He was just trying to survive the sandstorm, to just ride it out. All right, so I'm going to finish the rest of this story at the end of the podcast. But needless to say, in an ultra race, there are just many challenges. Yes. Moroccans speak either standard Arabic or Moroccan Arabic. <laughs> so how would you pronounce Marathon des Sables? We're just going to not answer that question. <laughs> I don't know. Okay. I don't speak Arabic. I'm guessing that's Spanish. But Okay. So you're going to finish the story at the end of the podcast. Yeah. Yeah, we're going to finish this story at the end of the podcast. Needless to say, in an ultra race, there are many challenges that you won't face in a marathon or a triathlon. In Hal Kerner's book, he's going to share his tips and experience and tricks to help you survive and and succeed. His book, however, doesn't go to the level of detail on how to survive in a sandstorm in the Sahara. But here's some tips from Hal's book. It's a good idea to conserve energy as best you can by power hiking up steep climbs because that uses different muscles rather than just sticking to running. And you could use some lightweight folding trekking poles to help you get up hills and keep from falling when you're descending quickly. It's a good idea to eat and drink while you're on the flats rather than going uphill or downhill. The top of a climb is a good place to take a break and fuel. And you can also take in the view and the accomplishment of reaching a summit. It's important to practice running downhill And speed work is still important, even though racing slow and steady is the key. When you train for a marathon, you might do a 20-miler. Some people do a little bit more. And for an Ironman, you might practice the full swim or the full bike or a part of the run. But for an ultra, 
it's best to break up your mileage days into back-to-back long runs that total up to about 60% of your goal race, assuming your goal race is a single day. And just like for the marathon or an Ironman, you've got to practice your nutrition. You've got to have a plan. And especially for an ultra, you need to eat early and often, even if you're not hungry. That's not easy to do. Have you ever had a problem <laughs> eating on a long workout? I always have a problem eating when I'm training, but I'm getting better at it. But it's not because I wasn't hungry. It's because my stomach gets upset, which I don't feel hungry, but I know you're not fueling because you're hungry. (laughs) Yeah, that's a good point. But sometimes it just gets hard to put something in your mouth and swallow it down. Yes, it does. Gels are good and they're easy to carry, but healthy fats are more dense So you could carry more calories. Like nut butters? Yeah, yeah. One fueling option that Hal recommends is baby food. I'm assuming he's not referring to fruits and vegetables, baby food. Maybe something that's a little bit more dense in calories. He actually mentioned making your own baby food out of fruits and vegetables. Oh, interesting. So I guess puree them. Interesting. Yeah. Some other food options, salt tablets... Pretzels, chicken broth, and potato chips are good sources of sodium. And we had one of our marathon athletes this week ask us for a salty suggestion for fueling. Because it does get old after a while taking a sweet sports drink and then gels with water. I guess I'll need to send him my homemade gel formula that includes salt. You got a good recipe. It works for me. Let's talk about shoes for a minute. We typically like to get shoes that, you know, you just feel a little bit of space between your big toe and the end. But for an ultra, you should expect that your feet are going to swell. So you may need to get shoes that are a little big, maybe a size or two larger, and just snug them up so that they are comfortable. I feel like my shoes, which I wear a full size larger in my running shoes than I wear in my day-to-day shoes, a size to a size and a half larger. But even with that, in this heat and humidity we're experiencing right now, I feel like my shoes feel a bit more snug than usual. Hence the blood on my shoe when I got finished running the other day. You still don't really know what caused that, do you? Well, I'm sure it was snugness of the shoe around my toes. Toe box didn't feel as wide as it needed to be that day. So this suggestion wasn't in Hal's book, but I'm inferring this. So if you're worried about your feet swelling, you may want to switch to a larger pair of shoes at an aid station once your feet start to swell, and you may also want to change your socks. Your shoes need to meet the demands of the course as far as traction goes, and then they need to be a type of shoe that's going to allow the water to drain out. You do not want to be sloshing around for 31 to 100 miles. Or 240. Or 240. And I found this suggestion of Howell's to be interesting. Don't try to go around a puddle. Go right through it. And his reasoning is there will be more puddles. You're going to go through a puddle eventually. Just get it over with and go. The shortest distance between two points is a straight line. Drying powder can help prevent blisters when your feet get wet. Just like your shoes need to be the type that'll let the water out, the socks need to be moisture wicking, and 
it's a good idea to have spare socks waiting for you at the aid stations. And you don't necessarily have to have a crew that's meeting you at the aid stations. You can drop off your necessities with the organizers and they'll make sure they're at the aid stations for you. So gaiters are some coverings that can be worn on the ankles to cover up the top of the shoe to keep the rocks out. <laughs> I have a rock in my shoe this morning. How did you do that? I have no idea. I was running on the streets. You were rocking and rolling. <laughs> no, I was stopping and getting a rock out of my shoe. You want to wear clothes that will not cause chafing, but don't be surprised if it happens anyway, because over the course of a day or five days, there's a lot of rubbing going on. But body glide or petroleum jelly can help reduce the friction. So that would be a good thing to have at the aid stations along the way so you can reapply. Don't you love it when you've gone on a run and you don't know you've chafed until you got in the shower? <laughs> it's painful. It <laughs> reminds me, when you were doing your first half marathon and Bethany was doing her first marathon, it was just outside of Evansville, Indiana. And I was Sherpa slash cheerleader. Slash Uber driver. We don't want to go there. <laughs> but that was the first time I remember ever seeing a man with severe chafing on his chest. <laughs> he was wearing a white shirt and there were two red spots on the front. And I I knew what had happened and I felt bad for the guy. <laughs> oh, going to be painful when he gets in the shower. How do we get off on that? <laughs> All right. Dealing with the temperature requires planning so that you have the proper clothing at the proper time. In these multi-day events with mountain climbs and descents, there's going to be huge swings, potential huge swings in the weather. I know. This is pretty self-serving on my part, but I'm really hoping I get a warmer leg when I am the pacer for Lee in his 240. <laughs> <laughs> I don't mind being hot, but boy, I don't do cold very well. Yeah. <laughs> it's a good idea to wear layers and maybe even arm sleeves. Arm sleeves are just easy to take off and easy to store. But yeah, be prepared for all the conditions. Be prepared for storms. You want to carry enough liquid to get to the next aid station and more. You hope you don't get lost, but it could happen. Uh, you can use hydration packs or bottles. If you're using a hydration pack, be sure to get the air out so that the drink doesn't slosh around. For night running, you'll want to have a headlamp, and it's a good idea to also have at least one flashlight as well and extra batteries. And the idea behind having a headlamp and flashlights is the headlamp is going to show you the way ahead, and then the flashlight you can use to scan the path to make sure you don't miss a turn. It's important that you make sure you know the course and know the signage of the course. And you need to know what the course markings look like. Uh, confidence ribbons or what Jacob and I would call markings on our hiking trails, blazes. They should line the course every so often so that you know you're still on the course. And they should also mark any turns or options at an intersection. And pacing is really important. A lot of the races are going to have cutoffs, just like marathons or a long distance triathlon event but you need to know what the cutoffs are to get to each of the aid stations and have a plan in place for how you're going to get there in time this lets you know when you can take a little extra break or when you need to step up your game 
And just like you with your bleeding toe, it's quite <laughs> likely you're going to have toe issues. And Hal recommends carrying some supplies with you to do some minor first aid, such as remove a toenail or cover up a scrape or a bruise. You haven't really gone through a marathon training block or an ultra training block if you haven't lost at least one toenail. <laughs> yeah. When the trail gets bumpy, consider running with your feet pointing out just a little to give you a more stable landing to avoid twisting an ankle. What do you think about that? It reminds me of when I worked at one of our public schools and it was icy. There were signs around that would say, walk like a penguin, and it would show turning your feet out a little bit. And I know you're looking at me funny because I don't remember seeing that. <laughs> so anyway, you take small steps with your feet out. So podcast listeners, you can't see this, but she's <laughs> wiggling like a penguin. Stop. <laughs> it's not uncommon to fall on a trail, no matter how careful you are. So you're likely going to get scrapes and cuts and bruises. And just like the tough mutter, you're going to get dirty. Not as dirty, probably. And it's common to have stomach issues at some point in an ultra. You know, it's a good thing you're not a marketing rep for an ultra. <laughs> I'm just telling you, it's a tough race. Whew. I'm going to have to take an antacid and just listen to this podcast. <laughs> so Hal recommends that you take an antacid an hour before the race, and you might want to carry one with you along the way in case you have stomach issues later in the race. And you've used antacid before. How does that work for you in your training and racing with marathons? I used to use Imodium, but after doing some research, I found that taking some Tums prior to the race is a little bit more beneficial. So I've been doing that and it seems to work really well. Good. So the antacid may also help with muscle cramps. And if you start vomiting... <laughs> it just keeps getting better. It keeps getting better. Don't stop drinking and eating. And I've added this myself. Unless you are planning on dropping out of the race. A warm broth can help ease the stomach. And you've got a plan for nutrition. Stick with it. Stick with what you intend to consume. Eat slowly and frequently. And slow down your pace and even walk while eating or when you're stomach gets upset but keep moving forward and if you have diarrhea Pepto-Bismol is good to get from your crew at a, or at an aid station as well as possibly a change of clothes <laughs> so if you do have to go to the bathroom and you can't make it to the next aid station we're assuming this is a, a trail ultra then leave something close to the trail you know adjacent to the trail where it's visible so that anybody else that comes by knows that you were there because if you venture off the trail to go to the bathroom and something happens you want people to be able to find you and when you're done using the bathroom you want to be able to make sure you find the trail again so you've got something that you're looking for but you don't want to use the bathroom on the trail that's just rude so you want to venture off the trail a little bit trying to avoid getting lost trying to avoid poison ivy and you need to find some way to dig a hole, do what you got to do, and cover it up. There shouldn't be any visible sign that you've been there other than maybe some, some dirt that is now looser than it was before. Leave it like you found it. I have nothing to say here. Quit looking at me. <laughs> All right, back to fueling. How do we get off on bathrooms? Oh, diarrhea. Okay. 
As part of your fueling and hydration plan, you need to keep an eye on your weight throughout the race. You should be consuming enough calories through drink and food that you're maintaining your weight pretty well. If you lose too much weight, you risk hurting yourself and the organizers may disqualify you. It's also important to pay attention to your urine color. If it is dark, you're either not drinking enough or your kidneys are struggling. So is that a thing at these aid stations that they have mandatory weigh-ins? Some of them, yeah. Because otherwise there would be no way, no way to keep track of your weight if there weren't scales at right. the aid stations. Yeah, exactly. If your kidneys are struggling, you may notice that you're gaining weight throughout the course, and that's not a good sign. If that's the case, get medical attention. A good rule of thumb is to drink at least 16 ounces per hour, more if it's hot, but be careful not to drink too much water too quickly, which could cause hyponitremia. Drinking something with sodium helps to keep your system in balance. So we talked about not going around a puddle, but if you're running through mud or water or ice or snow, all of these are possible when you're going through the mountains. Micro spikes are an option to help you maintain your footing. And these wrap around your shoe and can be taken off when the conditions improve. I wonder if that would work well on the road when the roads are icy. You have to try that. I used to have no fear running on ice, but I'm a little more conservative than I used to be. Let's talk about altitude. Running at altitude can be an issue if you don't train in the mountains. A couple thousand feet above what you're used to may not be a problem, but if you're racing well above the altitude you train at, you're going to have breathing issues. Hal suggests that peppermint candy can help open up your airway so you can breathe a little better. It's a good idea to lighten your load as much as possible and keep what you are carrying loose around the chest so that your lungs can expand as much as they as they possibly can. Again, use trekking poles to help you stay tall and keep your airways open. Now, if altitude does cause you problems, it's likely going to be headaches and a rapid heartbeat. And if you have time, you could travel a few weeks early and do some acclimation to the elevation. But some say that this actually drains you because during that period, you're struggling to adapt. So you're not really getting a very good taper. It may be better to do your taper at normal elevation and then go into the elevation with a topped off tank rather than having some acclimation but being exhausted. What if you get caught in a thunderstorm? Well, you don't want to be the tallest thing around. Don't hide under a tree, but if you're at the top of a summit and you're the tallest thing around, get as low as you can and try to find your way to shelter. If you encounter animals along the way, they're probably just as scared of you as you are of them. Make noise so you don't surprise them. And if they confront you on the trail, again, make noise, wave your arms to make yourself look as big as possible. But don't run away because they may instinctively chase. Walk backwards slowly and as a last resort, fight with whatever you can find. That's a scary thought, isn't it? <laughs> yes, it is. All right. So you've done all the training and you're ready to race. But what about your crew and your pacers? They need to be ready also. And you, as the ultra runner, it's your responsibility to give them all the details and all the supplies that you're going to need on race day. Be sure to know the rules 
because some races allow pacers and others don't, and some allow pacers to carry your supplies and others don't. Be sure to communicate your race plan so your crew knows whether you are ahead of or behind schedule. And be sure your crew understands that you may not be in the best of moods. And your crew may need to talk tough with you to get you motivated. Either way, don't take harsh talk personally. I know in Lee's race, he's not allowed to leave his pacer. So it's kind of pressure on the pacer to make sure he or she is in shape to get through their portion of the race without slowing him down. Yeah. Yeah, and there's one section of the Moab 240 where if you have a pacer, the pacer is going 50 miles. The pacer needs to be in good shape and have a plan and be well stocked for themselves and then also know the racer's strategy as well. But you don't have to have a pacer. The purpose of the pacer is for safety and motivation. The pacer is not supposed to give you any other advantage such as carrying anything for you or anything like that. Whether you have a pacer or not, be proactive as you approach an aid station. Know what you're going to need. Get it ready. When you get to the aid station, you want to be courteous, but you want to be upfront that you have business to take care of to do what needs to be done and get back out on the trail. And then the volunteers are going to recognize that and, and be as helpful as they can. And that's also helpful for your crew as well. If, if you know what you need and you're ready, then they'll be able to help you better as well. So be respectful of other runners when passing or being passed, and especially be respectful of the volunteers and the organizers. Putting on a race is just so complicated. And then don't be afraid to DNF if you are risking a serious injury or setback. All right, and then Hal has his top 10 must-dos and his top 10 must-not-dos. So let's walk through those real quick. Must-dos, you need to be patient. One thing that Hal says is when you start your race, you may think to yourself, I'm going too slow. He says, slow down more, be patient. Rest up beforehand during your weeks leading up. Wear a watch so that you can track your time and potentially your location if, if you get a good GPS signal. Uh, we've already said this, fuel early and fuel often. It's a good idea to have more than one goal. I mean, you might want to win the race. You might want to place. You might just want to finish. Have more than one goal. Be aware something is going to go wrong. Adjust and go on. Realize it's going to be difficult and you're going to have to push yourself. You want to visualize your success. You want to have fun. And just stay aware so that you don't get lost. All right, top 10 must-not-dos. We talk about this a lot with our athletes and on this podcast. Don't try anything new on race day. Don't go out too hard. Slow down. Don't leave out any details for your crew. Don't panic when things go wrong. Don't fret over the weather or the mud or anything else that's out of your control. Don't lose track of time on the course. You might be enjoying the company of your pacer, but don't lose track that you have to get to the next checkpoint by a certain amount of time. And then don't linger at the aid stations. Do what you need to do and hit the trail. Don't be rude to the crew, the volunteers, or other competitors. And don't rely on whatever the aid station has for fuel. Know what you're going to consume before the race begins. And do not lose sight of humanity. Help someone who is lost or is hurting. 
Does this make you want to do an ultra? Not particularly. All right. So that's a lot of the tips and tricks from Hal Kerner's book, Field Guide to Ultra Running. But let's get back to the story of Model. So after the sandstorm, which lasted eight hours, the landscape was totally changed. He continued on in what he thought was the correct direction across the desert. He had a good supply of food, but at this point he only had half a bottle of water remaining. And he began to worry, and being a resourceful person that he was, he he recalled his dad telling him a story from the war that if you urinate into a canteen before you get dehydrated, you can use it later to help you avoid dehydration. So that's what Morrow did. And over the next 10 days, he survived by eating and drinking anything he could find. He found a a little temple out in the desert, which provided him some shelter from the sun, but there were also some bats hanging out in it. And he crushed the bats and pretty much ate them whole to give him both the liquid and the solid food. He found snakes to eat. He eventually came upon an oasis, and he spent hours there drinking. And from there, he noticed some footsteps in the sand, and he followed them to a village. After 10 days being lost, he had lost 35 pounds and was 181 miles off the course. The race was 155 miles, but he survived. When he called his wife, the first thing he asked was, Have you already held my funeral? How stressful must that have been for her? It was horrific for both of them. It took him nearly two years. (laughs) Until he found out she was already remarried. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) (laughs) It took him nearly two years to fully recover. But he was not done ultra running. He had plans to return to the desert. He eventually lost his wife. That was just too much stress. But he returned to the desert again. He may have had his priorities a little bit out of whack. Maybe. Did you say maybe? Definitely. (laughs) So I don't know where he learned his survival training, but it paid off. So if you plan on doing an ultra through the desert, you might want to learn some survival skills. If you're going through the mountains, you may need some survival skills if it's going to be frigid cold, but definitely if you're going to be going through the desert. So for Morrow... His caveman instincts kicked in, and it was a miracle that he survived. Makes me want to do an ultra. (laughs) For the part of losing your wife? No, I don't want to do that. (laughs) I don't want to do the desert. Oh, okay. So as far as a scripture for today's podcast, this is kind of long. I was thinking about the story of Jonah and the whale. Or the great fish. The great fish, yeah. If you'll bear with me, this is several verses long. I'll read it. This is from... Jonah chapter 1 and 2, starting at verse 9. So the story starts off, Jonah's on a boat at sea, and he's running away from God because God wanted him to do something he didn't want to do. Go to Nineveh. And to get Jonah's attention, God stirred up a really bad storm, and everyone on the ship, except for Jonah, Thought they were going to die. But Jonah is down below just sleeping. Reminds me of when Jesus and the disciples were at sea in a storm. And this was the first chance in a while Jesus had the opportunity to rest. And so he's sleeping while they were all panicked they were going to die. Anyway, that's where Jonah's story starts. And the people on the boat came to him, woke him up, 
and asked him why he wasn't afraid and if and if he had any idea what had caused this terrible storm because they knew that this was not a natural storm and jonah said i am a hebrew and i fear the lord the god of heaven who made the sea and the dry land then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him what is this that you have done for the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the lord because he had told them then they said to him what shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous. And he said to them, Pick me up and hurl me into the sea, then the sea will quiet down for you, for I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rowed hard to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not on us innocent blood for you o lord have done as it pleased you so they picked up jonah and hurled him into the sea and the sea ceased from its raging then the men feared the lord exceedingly and they offered a sacrifice to the lord and made vows and the lord appointed a great fish to swallow up jonah and jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights can you think about Morrow being in the desert for 10 days. That's the parallel of the story. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord, his God, from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, Yet I shall look again upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped around my head. At the roots of the mountains, I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit. O Lord my God, when my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. Can you imagine being the first person stumbling upon Jonah after this? He's got like half-chewed seaweed stuck to his forehead. He probably looks like he just did a Tough Mudder. He probably smells a lot worse than that. Yeah, that's an amazing story of survival, but it's because God took care of Jonah. Do you believe that story is true? God's word is true. Amen. So we appreciate you listening to our podcast. We also have a Facebook group. Search for us, RYR Endurance Team. We'd love to have you join our group, and it's an opportunity for you to ask questions. There's a lot of talented athletes in our group that answer, and we chime in and answer from time to time. And it's also a great place to drop ideas for podcast topics. At RYR Endurance Team, we specialize in customized coaching. What is customized coaching? It's more than a training plan. It's a relationship. It's a partnership. So what are your goals? What are you training for? Contact us at ryrcoach at gmail.com or visit us on our website, ryrenduranceteam.com. 
Hey, if you enjoy our podcast, please do us a favor. Give us a five-star review and subscribe. This helps others find us. Thanks for listening.